Josh, is it is it recording? Well, you could have you could have said it was recording. Hiya, it's Sally here. <laughs> just a quick one, just a quick one. You can now rate Say Your Mind podcast on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. So if you can, do make sure that you do both. I know that some of you are just a little bit lazy. I can't say that. But why? Why? Why is it rate? Uh, anyway, <laughs> now for the urban intro music. <laughs> It's the Ben's Punani woman, this baby boys, baby girls, you need to hear this. So sit down, sit down, receive this realness. Make sure your cup's ready for the tea, we are gonna sip it Hard time scrolling for your long shorts. You might learn something you never know. Collect you find, and she's one of a kind. Don't say you mind, say you mind. Here we go. So looks like the um well looks like the tickets are out for the live show so I hope that you've managed to get your tickets at this point unless you're listening like when this drops this usually drops like Brent puts it out at like 5am on a Monday so I mean you've got 5 hours to wait if this if you're listening at 5am but if you're listening closer to 10am well or after 10am then the tickets for the live show it's now out. If you are a patron, um, ideally you would have, why is my phone not on silent? If you're a patron, you would have gone on Patreon um, from Sunday night to get your code to, uh, so you have a discount for buying the tickets. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a big deal. And I guess I'll be reporting back this time next week to say what the outcome was, you know, or you know, in terms of how the tickets have done, but you know, go for your life. Do you, there's no song as you notice, because I'm just, um, I'm just really just out here. Um, Ooh, I just, I think since the, um, shooting at Rob elementary, you know, um, in Uvalde in Texas, I've just been in my feelings. I just feel like, you know, prior to that, we had the Buffalo shooting as well. Um, and then just, you know, all the shits that, that's generally happening in the world. And I just think it's kind of difficult to stay upbeat when you see those things happening. And like, you know, then um, Raheem losing his finger and then these children being killed um, at Rob Elementary, along with teachers, um, children, you know, like children. And I was literally talking about it last week you know, at the end of last week's episode about Sandy Hook and like from when the gun laws didn't change then, fam, you had Columbine, you've had all of these things, these tragedies that could have been avoided, but because of your stupid fucking gun, gun laws, like nothing's changed. So it feels like I've just jumped right into it, but I just needed to make it clear that, you know, there's been times like this on a podcast before where I really just don't want to be here, don't really want to be recording, but you know, things have to be done. So the majority of the episode is going to be an interview that I did with Britt Hawthorne, who is an educator and activist and brilliant writer. Um, so you'll have that to listen to shortly and there'll just be little bits and bobs around that because yeah, what can anybody really say? You know, what can anybody really say? It's just wild at this point. So don't have anything to fill you on regarding me, um, except for, you know, the live show tickets for the Sa- uh, for Sadler's Wells are now out. So the live show is Sunday, 25th of September 
um, starts promptly at 6pm There'll be an after party afterwards And that's an extra ticket that you can purchase um, At the time of getting your tickets As well, those are very, very limited Those tickets um, But yeah, so that's me But um, let's get into your questions And what you've sent through for Tarot And I'm actually really irritated as well Because um, I'm trying to record And I usually try to record at a time where um, the building where my office is is virtually silent and then um, a few weeks ago um, some people moved in next door and they're lovely I guess but they play really loud music luckily Brent asked, told me a while ago to change my mic so my mic ideally doesn't pick up anything that isn't like lipsing distance away from it but it just irritates me because I feel like I'm talking mad loud and yeah, I'm always like careful with people to be like, can you keep the noise down? Because you sound like a Karen, but it's really irritating. Um, anyway, so uh, Tarot, let's see the question I've got here. Tarot question here says, dear Kelechi, honestly, I don't know how you, did I even introduce this podcast? Let me start with that. Hello. Yeah, yeah. It's me, Kelechi, in the whatever place to be. And you're listening to SYM, officially known as Say Your Mind, unofficially known as What What, that's right, suck your mum. Anyway, let's get into it. So the letter says, honestly, Kalechi, I don't know how you produce this level of magic week on week. Well, I doubt this will be magic. And this is the 200th episode, 200 um, episodes in. And, you know, like, I just feel like the world is a very shit place with some beauty in it. And of course, I don't want to bring people down. So if you're listening to this and you're like, whoa, I would say just like switch off and go and do something else. Go, go touch some grass, finger yourself, whatever, go and do something else. Um, but yeah, I'm okay. I guess that's the thing is the 200th episode of this freaking podcast. I've made 200, well, over 200 episodes because there've been like special edition episodes and that, but 200 episodes of this podcast um I've really put my heart and soul into it I've really given it everything I've really stayed on job stayed on point stayed on subject like calling out the things that I think need to be spoken about in the black British space even though that there are ops that work in these organizations and whenever they're asked to put lists together and the thing is I'm telling you now God will strike you down you keep doing that to me and watch what will happen to you stupid bitch um sorry that's gone off on a tangent but there are people who work in these environments that when they're asked to put like lists together of what are the black British voices that we should be paying attention to in terms of podcasts, they'll intentionally miss me out. But you know, I'm one of the largest, right? You know, I'm one of the largest, you know, I'm one of the most popular black British podcasts, but you do that intentionally and you think you're spiting me. But as you can see, like, I'm very resilient and I'm resilient because I trust in God's word. And God says like, the covenant, the covenant that God has with me, like I will rise above all of my naysayers and not only will I rise, I will stay there. I will stay there, motherfuckers. So no matter how long it takes, no matter how long you think that you're holding me up, I swear to you, the pit that you think that you're digging for me to fall into and that I won't achieve the things that I'm meant to achieve in this life, it's you and the things that, and the people that you care about that's going to fall into that pit. I don't know what pleasure some of you think you get from thinking that you're some kind of gatekeeper because you're also being kept out of the fucking place as well. Why did they leave you at the gate, you prick? Why did they leave you at the gate? You're not even in the palace enjoying, you're at the fucking gate and you're guarding it like a little, like a little complex. That's all I have to say for the 200th episode. Plus, yes, the live shows in September. Anyway, back to this letter because I had to get that off my chest as well. Um, 
back to the letter. Dear Kalechi, honestly, I don't know how you produce this level of magic week on week. I have been trying to draft this email for some time now and imagine my face when the tarot question this week was so relatable for me and was part way um, and was part way to what I wanted to ask for myself. My birthday is this Friday, 29th of April. Sorry, I missed that. And similar to the question from this week's baby girl, I really struggle to celebrate and accept others' celebration without discomfort. My question is more about what the year ahead will bring. I tend to downplay my birthday due to a lifetime of feeling like celebrating myself was wasteful, frivolous, would attract the negativity of others who want to keep me down. This became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And even when I really try to celebrate, deep down, I hear the voices of those who hated me celebrating myself and I dread who is going to let me down this year. So I struggle to fully enjoy it. This year, I'm celebrating just me and my partner for lunch and then me and my kids for dinner. I guess as a way to not hope for or for or expect anything from others on a day when I feel fragile. Um, I'm finally out of a controlling marriage and my and um, own my own place after a long divorce. So this year feels worth celebrating more than most. My self-awareness, self-reflection and self-discovery have been allowed to flourish with my newfound freedom and autonomy. I'm learning to trust my instinct, but it's difficult when I've had a lifetime of my instincts being scrambled and disorganized, but it's taking shape and growing stronger every time I exercise it. I have, among other things, my determination, lots of therapy, your podcast, Tarot, my kind, loving and patient partner and a grace of the universe to thank for the progress I've made. I'm learning how to discern the people in my life that were slash are unhealthy and codependent, manipulative and unbalanced friendships that are not serving me or in alignment with my or their highest good. I'm still struggling with keeping at least one of them out of my head. And so despite making big improvements, I haven't managed to fully take back my power in this situation and find myself hurting despite awareness of the dynamic. I have very few friends left and certainly no close friends except my partner. She's a real one. This is the first relationship I've experienced that nurtures my growth and expands my spirit instead of constricting and binding it. I'm in the best job I've ever had by far and they consistently undervalue me. Over the last five years of dedicated service working above my pay grade, I'm still the lowest paid employee. Rules and and restrictions apply to me that don't apply to my white colleagues. I've mentally let go of this as a place to excel and belong and have been somewhat content seeing the positives. It allows me time and space to pour my resources into parenting and writing. I just finished the first draft of a second novel, but, but publishers didn't want my first. Intellectually, I'm I'm clueless about the professional side of creating. But my gut tells me my agent doesn't seem to be interested in me for anything other than a big financial deal with little regard for which publisher is actually right for me and my work. (coughs) 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 Sorry. Anyway, I feel positive about this year and about the number 36. It gives me a sense of newness and magic. As someone who in the past tended to crave novelty, shiny thing syndrome, but also settled for less than I deserved, I wonder if I need to learn to be content with all I have or do I continue reaching for a fulfilling career and nourishing friendships? I have enough. A stable home, wonderful kids, a loving relationship and time to write. But also, will I ever know how to find and make friends or a best friend that won't break that don't break my heart at the same time as quote-unquote loving me will I ever earn enough money to not rely on universal credit will the people who need my stories ever read them 
How do I make this year about fully stepping into my worth so that I have people around me who also value me? Thank you today and every day for the unique space you hold and for the joy and growth you provide with love. Lots of kisses. Thank you. Thank you so much for that letter. That was beautiful. And, you know, you were asking some real questions and you were making some real statements, real, real statements, very valid statements. Um, what does spirit have to say about this? The 36 is a, is, is a fantastic year, actually, because it, I, I think I've mentioned it before. But it's Saturn's age of maturation. So Saturn's hoping that the lessons that, that were happening, that you were doing basketball around your Saturn return, you know, you've kind of grown into them now and you'll find that slowly all of the rewards from that um, begin to be released. Just shuffling the cards for you um, regarding your question. See what comes up. Okay, that card flew out. Okay. First card you've got is three of swords in reverse. So let's see what that's about. Let's see what that's saying. Okay. All right. Okay beautiful gorgeous all right okay just gonna get um a card from the spiritual seasoning for the soul deck let's see what it says in this one now do you have spirit for our listener okay perfect all right. So the first card you've got is the three of swords in reverse. Then you've got the sun card um, and then you've got the eight of cups and then you've got the four of cups. And then you've got from the spiritual seasoning, you've got upon all the things you think you may have done wrong in this life. The angels still celebrate you every single day. Let's get into it. Um, three of swords in reverse is that you can't be scared of heartbreak. You know, that's the first message that comes out for you here. You can't be scared of heartbreak. Every every single one of us take a risk every time we decide to love somebody, every time we decide to be vulnerable with people, every time we decide to let people in. Each of us are taking a risk. Every day, my brain is screaming at me. Um, you know, recently I've started working with some new people, a couple of new people actually, um, in a quite um in a quite in-depth way. And somebody who's not used to having people in my personal space, I'm not used to people being in my business. Like, it's not like, you know, I make a whole character out of it. No, it's just genuinely how I am. I'm an extremely private person. And I, you know, I share things. I kind of compartmentalize things. There's no one person that really knows all of the things. I think it might be that way with most people, but you know, like some people have a friendship group where in that friendship group, pretty much everyone in it knows all of their tea, knows all of their business. I don't have that. I don't have that. Like I'm very particular about what I tell certain people because going through the years, I'm aware of what I think that they can hold and what they cannot. But then that might be me um, preempting, like not giving them a chance to show that they could be better. But then when people have gotten a chance to show that they could be better, they've pretty much let me down, whether that's publicly or privately, they've let me down. So, you know, um, so I'm very kind of cautious, but then in new relationships, like new working relationships, new working friendships, that sort of things, uh, that sort of thing, my mind's screaming all the time. Like, you don't know, they could turn out to be an idiot tomorrow. They could turn out to come and like stab you in the back tomorrow. You don't know. What do you have in place? Da, 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 da. And each time I've just got to like self-talk and be like, life is about connection. 
We are here to connect. Life is about connection. We are here to connect. And I always feel like one of the best ways to meet people that you'll get on with is to go and do the things that you like. I, I feel like that's other people have said similar, but honestly, I meet people where I where I am doing the things that I enjoy. So whether that's BJJ, whether that's like swimming, whether that's gym, although I don't like people talking to me at the gym too tough, but you know, like I meet people around the things that I like, or if I'm, and that's why sometimes I'm even particular about like hashtagging the shows that I'm watching or things that I'm interested in, because that also brings people to you with a similar interest. But of course, not everybody wants to be online in that way, but you have to think about what do you like? Because whatever you like, there's somebody else that likes that thing. So you want to be around them. Um, you know, uh, I think that's important. Going to meetups, you know, like Black Ballad, they have like mingles and stuff. Um, apart from Black Ballad, you know, there are other, you know, black groups, you know, focused around black women. Um, you know, Black Ballad being an, a magazine and a lifestyle brand. But, you know, like you can you can meet people in spaces that have already been created for that sort of thing. So, and, and I would treat it like dating, just, you know, see where you connect with people and be intentional about it. Like, what do you want out of a friend? This was one of the things that I spoke about in therapy, because I actually realized that I want older friends. I feel like a lot of the time I'm giving counsel to my friends and, and I think that's great. But, um, I just feel like I would like, not that age would mean that they, know more than me or whatever but I just would prefer much older women to kind of be in conversation with um and just to be around I find that energy nurturing um that's probably why like my favorite masseuse or my most favorite massage therapist is Pauline because I just feel safe around her I know that not all older black women you feel safe around but I feel safe around her I think she's a great person um and just very kind and you know brilliant at her at her work in terms of massage therapy um but that's me also giving an idea of us giving um, an example of a service as opposed to a genuine friendship but what I'm saying is that like I gravitate towards that now because I know what it is that I want all of this um ayonge yonge yongi babies I don't really that's not really my vibe you know I don't there's I don't need it um so you can't be scared of your heart being broken when you make these friendships because you just never know, you know, you just never know, but you've got to take a chance. You know, that's why the three of swords came out in reverse that, yeah, your heart's been broken many times before, but the thing is the heart breaks many, many times in order that it can open and then you can discover something new about yourself. But that's not to romanticize heartbreak. Obviously, if there are mad things happening and um, you need to be away from them, then you move away from them. But there are lessons that you pick up along the way and you know what you do not want to tolerate or have around you the next time, which is what I think that you've done so well with thus far. But you have to allow for people to um, come in and, you know, and I think that starts from deciding on the things that you enjoy and you want to do. The sun card here is brilliant for you because it's saying that, you know, and I was literally just talking about um, Saturn's age of maturation and everything. This, But the sun card here is like really, really positive for you that so many blessings are coming for you this year um, as you're, as you're, you know, you've had your solar return. So many blessings are coming for you. And also to give yourself and um, cut yourself some slack, because if you're 36, in your 36 year, that would be your 12th house perfection year. So lots of things being let go, your spiritual expansion happening as well. Um, and then you'll move into your first house perfection year, which is ideally where I think that you will find that you'll get your um, agent. You need to leave your agent 
you need to leave your agent because we've got the eight of um, cups here. Ace of Cups, she's in a red dress and she's holding a wand and she's walking through the desert with her back to the eight cups that have stacked, going in search of her two cups. You need to leave because you need to, you know, you need to know how to get up from the table when love is no longer being served, dragging myself. But you know, you, you can't be like, oh, just because this person took you on when no other person would or whatever, in terms of um having an agent or whatever, that you're going to stick with them out of like misguided loyalty. The fact of the matter is that your agent is people forget that your agents work for you. Like your agent works for you. And if they're not doing things that are in your best interest, you have a right to say something. And if they can't bring themselves up to speed, then you also have a right to be like, well, this isn't working for me. Because if you're just staying there out of like obligation or or fear that if I leave, I won't get anything else, then you're limiting yourself. Like she's this woman in the eight of cups, she's going, she's walking in the desert. She doesn't know when next she's going to find water and she's leaving her eight cups because she's sure within herself that she's going to find her other two cups and she's going to find a fucking fountain. She knows that. And so she's going for it. And so this is what you have to have. You have to have that self-belief that you are better than where you, you, you know, where you find yourself now, that you deserve more than when you find yourself now. And the only way um, the universe is going to know that you're ready is if you take that first step, because while you're still there, then what's going to happen? And don't worry about publishers not taking your first book, because I'm going to cuss publishers very, very shortly anyway. And so you mad, they're going to get a really, really good cussing. So wait on that. Um, and then you've also got the four of cups here, which is saying like rest, rest. Like there's so many things that you're trying to figure out, but you've done so much work. And sometimes we become preoccupied with working on ourselves so much so that we don't actually enjoy the work that we've done on ourselves. I don't like this dragging spirit. Leave me alone. Sometimes enjoy who you've become, enjoy the things that you've, um, you know, that you've managed to achieve in terms of your workplace, you're going to leave there soon as well. You're going to have to, um, because what's happening is that you're doing um, brandy almost doesn't count or you're, you're doing almost does count. And this is like, no, almost doesn't count. Spirits like almost does not count. You can't just be like, oh, well, you know, even though they don't value me, even though they tell me to sit in a corner and somebody comes to sit on my head to eat their lunch um, at break time, it's fine because, you know, um, at least I'm somewhere and it's steady. No, no. Again, I keep saying to you, you have to show the universe that you're ready by taking the first step. And I'm not saying like, leave this job straight away. Like you might be listening to this at work. I'm not saying fuck it, flip the table and get up and leave. No, I'm saying start looking at other opportunities and put, uh, when you're doing your resume or whatever, put all of the things that you've been doing that you've been working above your pay grade for like how long now, put all of the things that you've been doing since and hike up that, that, um, that salary that you're waiting for, put it and go in search of your two cups because your two cups now really is like, we want emotional fulfillment and we want professional fulfillment, right? Emotional fulfillment. You want some friends, you want new friends, you want friends you can trust. That's why you're going out into the desert to go and find them. And then you want professional fulfillment. You need a new agent and you need um, a new job that actually values you and pays you what you're worth all of that stuff because I see life as um sometimes um as an incremental incremental joy right so you get to a place that you've never gotten to before and it's like raw I've never been here before like this is so cool but you know that you still desire more the thing is that that new normal that's become your baseline now so you're not going to go below that so that means that you can you can aspire for more and that's what you've got to do you know, like you've, you've hit this baseline of, well, at least I know I can have a job that on a 
basic level, I'm happy with. However, these things need to change. So now you can go for the extra things that you want and that will become your new normal. And thus you've in, like you've had that incremental kind of increase um, uh, in your joy and in your surroundings. So that's why you've got to do it. And then it says here, upon all the things you think you may have done wrong in this life, the angels still celebrate you every single day. You are so celebrated, you are so loved, and you've got to celebrate yourself in the way that your ancestors and the way that the angels celebrate you. Like sometimes I have to take a step out of myself sometimes. And like, I'm really hard on myself. I'm always like, oh, I haven't achieved this and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And I have to just think like, no, but I'm a baby girl. Like I'm a literal, I'm a baby girl. Like take a moment to look around and see what God, what the Lord has done for me. Do, do, do. I cannot tell it all. Do, do, do. What the Lord has done for me. Hey, I cannot tell it all. Hey, what the Lord has done for me. Why I cannot tell it all. He saved me. So I can shout hallelujah. Go there girl. Shout hallelujah i can shout boom 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 praise the lord that was um a little kind of you know um serenade for you but honestly you look around and you look at what god has done and then you're just like you know what more can be done you know more can be done show me how good it can get that's what i saw online a few months ago was it or is it weeks ago like when you're praying, 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 just say, you know, Lord, show me how good it can get. Show me how good this life can get. Show me. Like I challenge you, show me and let yourself be shown because there's so much more that, that, that is waiting for you. And you are celebrated in ways that you can't imagine from all the things that you've been through and all the times that you've been able to look at something and being like, oh, you know what? This isn't working for me. I'm a head out because that I'm a head out energy. You need to kind of keep it with you to do the other things that you're doing but it sounds far away but hear me now listen carefully by 40 by the time you're 40 you will be a published author you will be a published author proper you know like by 40 because remember that when your thing is now taken they're now going to decide on you know publication dates and all of this stuff and you'll have like redrafts and all of those things Am I even speaking into the mic? You'll have redrafts and all of those things to do and da, 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 da. But watch, by the time you're 40, you're going to be out here. And then you're going to remember that, that they were, that they were fucking idiotic publishers that were like, oh, they didn't want what you had to offer. But, you know, things always work out in the end. They do work out in the end. And when you get out there and start making friends and whether it's a book club or whatever, because bear writers join book clubs, you know. You know, so meeting other writers, meeting editors, going, you know, there are usually like Twitter spaces. I know that there used to be clubhouse rooms where publishers would be talking oftentimes for far too long about what you could do in order to um, get yourself um, signed or, you know, get yourself a deal all of that stuff. So I would encourage you to kind of try and be in those spaces. But honestly, for you, you've done a lot of work. You've been writing, you've been doing all of these things. Take it easy on yourself and celebrate yourself the way that the angels celebrate you. Because when you celebrate yourself, you then understand that your worth, ah, your worth is, is, is a serious one. And so you will not be able to tolerate 
being in a work environment that isn't respecting you. You won't be able to tolerate an agent that's apathetic to your um, personal and professional growth. You won't be able to stand it and you'll have to strive for more. And I think sometimes that's why people are scared. They know that if they were to celebrate themselves to the, um, you know, in the entirety of their being, there was, there will be certain things that they can no longer be around because it's just low vibrations. And so, you know that, so you need to do the needful um, so I pray that that resonates with you. I'll pause here and big up the um, show sponsor for this week. And then we will jump into uh, Show Your Magnificence. So big up this week's show sponsors who are Wild Deodorant. Thank you. Thank you for keeping us smelling fresh. So Wild is the UK's number one um, natural deodorant company and they focus on effectiveness, sustainability and style. I've talked to you before about the cute um, case that you get for um, your deodorant that you can refill with whichever kind of um, scent and vibe that you like. Um, you can grab a case that you can keep forever and they're seven pounds. They're refills which last around three months are available on a flexible subscription for about five pounds um, per refill. So it's just great value for money and Wild offers um, a range of scintillating scents such as fresh cotton, sea salt, coconut dreams, mint and eucalyptus, jasmine and mandarin blossom, sandalwood, uh, sandalwood and patchouli and orange and neroli. So just really nice vibes, really nice scent. And like I say, especially if you need to be like outside again, um, on the tube, just encourage people to just go and get themselves some wild deodorant and, you know, smell cute and have like, you know, environmentally friendly materials that have gone into making it. Um, it's a sustainable, fully sustainable design because the um, aluminium case is for life, plus it's biodegradable and um, you've got um, the recyclable uh, deodorant refills. So it's a great concept um, and it's a way of reducing plastic in your everyday routines. And it's convenient because when you need your refills, they can post it to you and it just pops right into your letterbox. Um, So go wild today and get yourself this natural refillable deodorant that genuinely works. You can order by going to wearewild.com and you'll get 20% off your first order when you use code MIND2022. So that's MIND, M-I-N-D, 2022 at checkout. That's wearewild.com and code MIND2022 um, at checkout for 20% off. And I hope you enjoy it and you smell wonderful. Anyway, let's get to share your magnificence. So for this week, I first wanted to big up man like Dapper Adeola big up yourself, two slaps on your chest. He um, won best um, illustrator of the year and um, book of the year at the um, Nibbies, which are the British book awards. I'm super, super proud of you, man. Like doing all of these big things, doing wonderful things, um, really out here changing the game when it comes to publishing and illustrating and the stories that are told, Um, you know, and you're a big man like you're you're a big man you know like you're doing all these things and you know your birthday was just the other day and you're doing amazing things you're doing amazing sweetie keep it up keep it up fam um no um two slaps on your chest for that because it's incredible it's incredible to win um those two categories as well and um you know being in the industry for as you would say not that long but look at all that you've achieved so I wish you more life more life and you know all the wonderful things that you're able to do in the world and you know within the publishing industry with all of your talent um next show your magnificence um is my interview with Brit Hawthorne um so Brit has a book out or that's come in you know that's coming out called um 
Raising anti-racist children A practical parenting guide um, It's full of questionnaires, stories Practical activities, helpful tips And tools to foster an anti-racist lens Um, Raising anti-racist children empowers you and your kids to become conscious citizens and active participants in working towards justice. Um, And it's just a great guide and it's got like lots of contributors or a few contributors in there as well who um, speak about this. But it was great to speak to Brit about it. And the reason that it's going to be usually, you know, that the interviews, I like to keep them fairly short. But we were talking about so many things, especially about um, Rob Elementary as well and just like the state of the world as it pertains to children so I just thought you could have that and enjoy that instead so um yeah enjoy rip 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 lovely to have you with me wow um how are you I'm doing let's see um I'm doing pretty good I'm in a state of excitement with the book mm-hmm. coming out um but also in a bit of a state of just pure righteous eloquent rage um, yes here in the States, we just had another mass shooting. Yeah. Um, and so, and I live in Texas and this is the second one in a week. Yes. And so it's, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to embrace all of the emotions of being a full human being. Yeah. I'm here. And, and, and I appreciate you being here because I have just felt exhausted over like just the, well, for, for life really, but over the past few weeks just it seems relentless it seems relentless this unaddressed rage it seems relentless this unaddressed conversation about like white supremacist um, heteropatriarchy and so in the lead up to our conversation of course I was excited for us to talk about your book I was excited for us to talk about the workshops that you do and then boom 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 literally boom 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 all of these things happened you know with you know these sprees these shooting sprees and I thought actually that is what I think we should talk about because I know that you um, have um, a range of, you know, workshops that you deliver mm-hmm. around anti-racism, anti-bias um, and these very, very pertinent and important conversations. But where does somebody start to explain to their child, like, wow, you know, this, this, this is the world because I have, you know, a son that's going to be three. And although I know that I have specific ways that I want to address these things with him. I know that there are other parents out there who are just like, how do you take on such a tantamount task? And I'm thinking of the people who um, are marginalized, um, who have, who have such an intimate experience of it that they need to explain to their children. I don't know if you've heard, but in the UK, um, I, and I talked about it in the previous episode or this week's, well, last week's episode at this point, um, Raheem, who had his finger amputated because he um, had hurt his finger while trying to run away from um, boys who um, had were bullying him in Wales, um, you know, a part of the UK. I'm just going to see if I can send you a, a link. Raheem Bailey. Um, we're just bringing it up here, seeing if it will let me send it to you. Yeah, he had his finger amputated because while he was running away from them trying to climb a fence um he caught it and the way that the school behaved they didn't even want for him his mum to take him to a and e um they told her to wait hours and hours but and yeah but by the time everything had come to a head anyway his finger needed to be amputated and he'd been saying for ages that he was getting bullied um for his color because mm-hmm. black and the boys bullying him were white all of that was happening and his mum had tried to find ways to explain it to him. But I think about the, like I said, I think about the 
parents who have to explain to their children who will be, you know, affected by this in a very, very intimate way. And then I think about the parents who say, oh, well, my child's too young for me to explain to them what they've just done to your child or, Mm. you know, what, what the world is like. They're too young to understand racism. The children who aren't as intimately affected by it or so they think. How does one go about that? I've just dropped you the link in the chat. Yeah. Mm. I, I skimmed it as, as I mm. opened it up and I skimmed it. And, um, you know, just even just looking at this mom and son together and you can just see the pain in her eyes. Oof. Right. Yeah. It's like, okay. So I, I, I can't find my copy. I, I keep looking for it, but I think that I have left it at a school there is a book called Embracing Anti-Bias Classrooms. It's written by four Black women mm-hmm. and a Black woman of the diaspora. And in there, they talk about, and I really appreciate this book. It's the only um, early childhood book that I know of that addresses in the text, both anti-Blackness, but also white privilege from mm. an early childhood lens, right? A lot of the other early childhood books kind of dance around it in a way and, yeah. and just say, you know, um, Children can pick things up. But in this book, it specifically talks about by four years old, children have already picked up or can pick up anti-Blackness. And also by four years old, children have already learned how to use their whiteness. White children Mm -hmm. have already learned how to use their whiteness to wound, exclude, and other children. Wow. So this idea that children are too young is just, um, it's just a cop-out, right? Mm. It's saying that. I don't feel like I have the skills or the bandwidth or the capacity or, you know, I just, or I just don't really care enough. Yeah. The desire to, I just don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I would rather figure out, you know, PTO activities and play dates and carpool and soccer. You know, there's like all of those activities that, that caught, that have an immense amount of time. Mm. I much rather put my time there than to figure out, how do we dismantle, aggressively dismantle racism? Mm. So, you know, last night we talked to our children. We have a nine-year-old and a 15-year-old. Both are self-identified cisgender boys, black mm-hmm. boys. And we talked to them separately because they're at two different age groups, mm. right? Developmentally. So with our nine-year-old, um, he had just got it, his summer workbook. I'm such, I am such a teacher. <laughs> we, bought, we bought him summer workbooks that he can like practice math and reading. So he just got it and he climbed in our bed and he started doing, he's like, mom, I really love this. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad. And then, um, when my partner had got into the bed, I said, Hey, we're gonna have to talk to you. And my husband was like, we're doing this now, like right now, like I hadn't Mm. processed yet. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, because this principal already sent out an email yeah, and she said that they're going to practice active shooting drills tomorrow. Oh, and kids are going to be talking about it. And I want to get ahead of it. So for Kobe, our nine-year-old, I had just simply say, I'm going to tell you a story that happened today. Mm-hmm. And it's a true story. And I'm learning about it from the news. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you because it is not only a tragic story, but it was something that could have been prevented mm-hmm. and something you're going to hear about tomorrow. So that's really how I kind of preface that. Mm-hmm. And then I had just simply told him the facts that I knew. And for nine-year-olds, we keep it short and simple. Okay. We don't uh, sanitize anything, but we also don't overshare. Yeah. Right. So it was a man, 
uh, an 18 year old man went into an elementary school with an assault rifle. Mm -hmm. um, and he intentionally chose to kill people. And yeah. as of now, we know 16 people died. And immediately my nine-year-old's face, like he kind of got this smile on his face. And I think it's important that caregivers know that's a nervous smile. Yeah. When children are dysregulated or disordered with their feelings, mm -hmm. that that can happen, a nervous smile or a giggle, because what we just told them was so unbelievable. Yeah. Right. And that's how come I wanted to preface with that. It's a true story that happened today. It's not a video game. Yes. Because for them, that's all they, that's their closest connection yeah. to this kind of violence would be if your children are already playing those kind of video games, mm -hmm. um, like Fortnite or Call of mm -hmm. Duty kind of thing. That's their closest connection. Mm -hmm. And so I just paused when I saw that smile, you know, I paused and I said, show me, put your hand on your body. Where is it showing up? Oh. And that's something we have done since he was three, four, because he didn't mm -hmm. have the vocabulary to say, you know, I am angry or I'm full of rage. Like he just didn't have that vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So for him, it was showing up in his throat and he put his hand on his neck, you know, and I said, you could just take some deep breaths. And then he's, and I said, what questions do you have so far? And he said, why? Oh. Was his first question, why? And I said, you know what, Kobe, I don't know why. And to be quite honest, the why doesn't matter at this point because it was, it would never, ever be justifiable. Yeah. Ever. And I think that's important. You know, kids, they want to make sense at the, the school age. Mm -hmm. They're so driven by right and wrong and they want to mm -hmm. know why's, you know, even if you have like a five, six year old and they're like looking at the clouds, you know, and they're like, what are those? And you're like, they're clouds. And I'm like, but why? Like, <laughs> uh, this thing called the water cycle. I don't know the yeah. they're like, but why? But why? And then school age, they're still there. They're trying to sort the yeah. world out. And I said, um, so then from there, you know, we had just said, I want you to know that this is how come your father and I believe in having strong gun laws and policies. We don't think that any citizen should have an assault rifle and that it's not mm -hmm. necessary mm -hmm. and that guns don't keep us safe. Mm -hmm. um, and I told him, I said, and that is how come it's really important that we vote for people who are working to keep us safe. And then I named for him, um, Governor Abbott, Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Corrin are not keeping us safe and they don't represent us. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, dad and I are working on that. And I said, tomorrow at school, the adults at your school are also going to work to keep you safe. And that's why you're practicing your drill. Um, and that I'm, I'm trying to think, was there any other kind of thing that we touched on with Kobe? And I think that was, it was pretty short and sweet. Yes. You know, if you have a child that's around five, they tend to cling on to death. They're, they're in a way very intrigued by death. They want to know mm -hmm. like, are you going to die? Am I going to die? Like, where do yeah. you go? And that's very, very typical. So they around four or five, six might actually ask for details. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like, where were the people shot? And again, it's because they don't have any, typically, I'm not just saying not all kids, typically mm -hmm. kids don't have any context for that kind of violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really want to say typically, because I also realize we have um, lots of children 
um, that are refugees because of war and they have seen violence mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. that way. Um, so that was our conversation with our nine-year-old and our conversation with our 15 year old was a little bit different. Uh, he led the conversation a lot more than we did because we've done a lot more work. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it is a conversation really around if you hear something, you say something, if somebody shared something and social media, because oftentimes it comes out, right, that, oh, um, it was a former student and they did post something on Facebook and no one said anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with a 15-year-old, it's much more like, hey, if you ever hear anything, you need to report it. You need mm-hmm. to say something. And if you don't feel comfortable reporting it to people at your school, you come and you report it to us. And then we also talked to him about um, if there was an active shooter. And I know you're supposed to shelter in place, but if you think you have an opportunity to run, get your ass out that window and Mm -hmm. you run, you run as far as you can. And so that Mm -hmm. conversation with him is just a little bit different. Um, But it's, it's, it's surreal having to have this conversation in the state. Mm -hmm. What feels like now, both as a former teacher but also as a parent, what feels like on the regular. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's that, I, that term surreal. I just keep finding myself go as, you know, saying about so many aspects of our life currently, like this can't be, this is not normal. This, this is, this is not, we can't normalize this as well. Like Mm -hmm. this can't be okay. There are so many, so many irregularities to what, is natural that we have been socialized into accepting this cannot, you know, be one of those things yet for the sake of, you know, in case of incasity, as we'd say in Nigeria, you want to know that your children at least have some idea of what's going on. Um, while still being like, I don't want this to be your world. I don't want this to be all that you ever know. But, um, I wanted to kind of go on that journey as we, come towards uh, talking about your book. So um, you were a teacher, but you are still teaching in a capacity because you're doing these workshops and you're doing, you know, advocacy and you're doing incredible work. When, what led you to the teaching and then what said to you, what was like, oh, let we, we've got, we've got other things to do. Let's, let's go out there. Yeah. So I'm a second generation teacher. My mom was a teacher. I've been in education. What I tell people, I've been in education my whole life. Mm-hmm. Whether as a student myself, whether it was helping my mom in her classroom, um, or in some capacity of teaching, and so I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Like there, yeah. I was the kid who we had a basement because I grew up in Illinois, where um, we had basements, but in Texas we don't. But anywho, mm-hmm. and so my basement, I would set up all my stuffed animals, and I would pretend they were different students in my classroom. And I would have my mom and my dad come downstairs and check them out for the day. And I would like tell them about their day. So I always knew I wanted to be a teacher, right? Like that was my, my gift. And I just loved giving it away. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I continue to teach. I just, I love doing that. And um, so I knew I wanted to teach elementary because I had, I worked with a range of students before going into um, university. My undergrad is in elementary education, mm-hmm. became a teacher. And then uh, also we had at the same time, Carter, our oldest, we were looking mm-hmm. for school and we were in a parent talk class. And I overheard some folks say, oh, you know, that public Montessori school, the list is opening up. We're going to try and apply. My ears perked up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what's that? It sounds pretty posh. So maybe I'll check mm-hmm. it out. 
Mm-hmm. And I did. And um, long story short, we applied, we entered into the lottery system and he mm-hmm. his name got picked. And then I started my journey of becoming a Montessori teacher through Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. I loved the energy that was mm-hmm. in the school, the calmness, yet the grace and uh, the equality mm-hmm. was something I had never seen before. I never had experienced teachers talking to children as equals mm-hmm. and vice versa, right? Like it just was something I was like, I want this for me, like li- yes. like myself, not just my child. I want it for me. And so I went to Montessori training. Um, that can be very isolating. Mm-hmm. And Montessori is so niche that mm-hmm. it can get really stuck in a lot of like dogma in its mm-hmm. own kind of way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was like trying to find my people. And I found an organization called Montessori for Social Justice. Mm-hmm. And I started volunteering with them. I volunteered with them for three years. And so not only did I find my community of folks that I really admire, and I'm like, oh, I, I want to advocate like Tiffany, right? Like I want to show up like Daisy. Mm-hmm. I want to center indigenous folks like Trisha. Like as I was like finding my community, then I just naturally started taking on a facilitator role. Mm-hmm. Um, I was bringing all of that into my classroom. And in my classroom, we were doing like identity wheels. And I was having my fourth through sixth graders um, self-identify like their racial identity, their gender identity, their socioeconomic status. I would have students ask me questions like, well, you know, Mrs. Hawthorne, if my dad is Mexican born in Mexico, but my mom is Italian born in Italy, but I was born here. What am I? Mm. Right. And so like sixth grade. And she's like, I I don't know what I am. She's like, Mm -hmm. am I Mexican? Am I white? Am I European? Am I Italian? You know, my American, she's like, oh. And so like, we're all like just digging like, okay, well, you have a nationality mm-hmm, and you have mm-hmm. an ethnicity, but you also have a racialized identity and, mm-hmm. you know, really having her, but all of my learners self-identify, I think is really powerful and important yes. to have language. So as we're doing this identity work, then we're also putting into practice as we're like, you know, digging into social studies lessons. And I'm like, Wow the text that you just read, who's the author of that text? Let's Google what they look like, Hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and what are they writing about? And uh, this is when I'm trying to get a lesson out of our local school district and trying to get it removed. But it's a white man who's writing as if he's a Korean man and even writing in a very like, um, I don't want to use a word like broken English, but like, what, what white yeah. folks would consider broken English. And it was yeah. like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not, not only you're not your story to tell, but this is not your representation. Mm-hmm. So then having my learners write letters to curriculum um, instruction, it's to the ones who like make the curriculum and give it to mm-hmm, us mm-hmm. to teach it. To be like, we disagree with this. So we're doing all of this work in the classroom. And at the same time, my two black children are experiencing educational racism. Wow. And our four-year-old, and that's kind of, that's the story I opened the book with, because that was really the catalyst. But our four-year-old had a teacher who told him to shut up. And when Kobe had reported it to me, also felt very surreal. Mm -hmm. I also do this work for a living. So I'm like, you know, is it really? And I said, well, I'll talk to your teacher. So talk to the teachers. And I said, just, hey. Kobe said that so-and-so told him to shut up. Can you give me some context? And then the teacher looked me straight in the eyes, did not blink or anything, and just said, yeah, I did. I was like, what? 
I didn't, I honestly did not expect her to admit it. I wanted her to deny it. Like a yes. part of me. Yes. Was like as a teacher, as a coworker, this is a school I work at. Yeah. And then I was like, what? And so then she was telling me how she was really frustrated with Kobe. He was talking a lot. He wouldn't nap. This was during nap time. And the other teachers, I think, were also in shock of just like mouth is open. Like, I cannot believe this has happened. Yeah. Um, and the other two teachers are like really trying to problem solve things that I know that this teacher already knows how to do. But she's choosing not to do it. She's, it's the choice. It's the choice. And it's it's the fact that she's standing by her choice. It's weird. Yeah. Weirdly, I respect it in the sense that, oh, you're 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 wayward, but you're 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 ten toes down on that waywardness. So at least I see it as opposed to trying to weave behind the scenes and be like, heavens, I didn't know that I said that. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Just, I said it. I said it. Now where are we going from here? It was no gaslighting at all. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And then, so then it just got to the point. I was like, okay, well, Kobe's talking. Who's he talking to? Uh, and it's his best friend. Who's a little blonde haired blue eyed boy who just moved back from France. And Kobe's like, so excited. Um, and she's like, so-and-so. And I said, okay. And did you tell so-and-so to shut up? And at that point, that was like when the reality sunk in for her. Yeah. Because it was like, it was like, I then had asked her to commit a sin. Yeah. Like I would never. And I was like, and this is the problem. And this is why we need anti-bias, anti-racist work. So this was back in 2006, 17. This is 2017. Yeah. And I had been demanding the school do a bar training. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my husband was like, I know that you love the classroom. I, I know that you love what you're doing. Yes. But if you're not doing it for our own black kids, I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. Okay. And um, yeah, we let the truth take up space in our house. And so we yeah. just, we say it and then we're like, I'll let you breathe through that. And I'm going to go make dinner. <laughs> I love that though. That is, to, that is such, that's a beautifully healthy household because oftentimes we don't want, we don't give truth space in our homes. We don't give truth enough room to breathe. We don't give ourselves enough room to process. So it's just like, your, you know, and your loved ones calling you to your calling, mm-hmm. you know, alerting you to your calling. Like, hey, well, seems like it's your time. It's yep. your time. Yep. So I was like, you're right. And so then it was, what do we do? And after realizing we could not at all afford private school, and also trying to figure out like where my values are, like I believe in public education, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet we have public education failing black kids and yes. all kids, but particularly black kids as this example you just shared um, about Raheem, like yeah. Raheem Bailey, right? We have school systems are failing our children. So we decided to homeschool. Okay. And we homeschooled for five years. Um, mm-hmm. This is Kobe's first year back. Carter went back a couple of years ago. And so just as we were homeschooling, I then had the space to share on social media. And I just was sharing things that we were doing and, um, I remember one time Kobe, we were at the public library and I recorded a video of Kobe coming up to me and saying, mom, can I use your phone? And I said, why? And he goes, I have to look up this author. And I said, okay. And so and I think he was maybe about five or six mm-hmm. years old. 
And by that time, Kobe already knew um, we always looked up the author of the books mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that we intentionally centered Black authors. So if it's mm-hmm. not a Black author, it gives us a yellow flag. And that means we need to slow down, read. Like, we can't just automatically check it out. Yes. We slow down, we read the book, and then we have a conversation. Do we really need to check this book out? What about mm-hmm. it do you really like? Mm-hmm. And so it was a white author who was and on the front of the book cover was a black boy, had an Afro, had a basketball and a bus. So Kobe saw himself. He's like, Oh gosh, this is me. Yeah. And then he looks it up and then it's a white author. And Kobe's like, how disappointing. Because uh... <laughs> he's like, seriously. And then I said, well, do you still want to try it? And he said, I'm going to try it. Mm-hmm. And he read a few pages and he was like, Nope. And he Good. put it back on the shelf. Guan Kobe. <laughs> yep. He was like, nope. And so just like, as I was sharing that a lot of people that were reading were like, I can't believe at five, six years old, he already has these skills. Like he already has these expectations. He already can say no to whiteness. Yes. Like, hmm, because fully grown adults are struggling. Yes. Yes. The cover of my book, like if you look, there's two different covers. This is the the cover that I um, can see that I um, is the very, it's beautiful, the um, almost rainbow colored. So raising anti-racist children. So the raising is in different colors and then anti-racist children we've got in white, a practical parenting guide. And do the, and the, the little children skin yeah. tones or are they jet black? Just jet black. And then we've Perfect. got like a white haired one and we've got um, like a yellow haired one, but I'm loving the dungarees. Yes. Okay. I'm going to pull up... Um... The other cover. So the, the one that you're looking at is the right cover. Mm-hmm, and it is mm-hmm. the original cover of mm-hmm. the book. And then what happened was the publisher felt like it was not, quote unquote, inclusive enough. Oh. So oh. they changed the cover. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a link with you. So Thank you. you. See it. So they changed the cover. And said, you know, we want to make sure everyone, but we know who everyone is. We want to make sure everyone knows this book is for them. Still. And I'm like, how are we writing an anti-racist book? But oh, we're centering whiteness. Still centering whiteness. So then, no. yeah, you see it? Whoa. It was fine as it w- was. Like, you know, beautiful. So listeners at this point, if Brent, you know, can, I'm going to see if I can just like do little squares so you can just see the difference. So you can see the original one and then you can see the one that they want to move to or that they had moved to. And just so you can get an idea of it, because it's the children that have changed yet. The children are the center of this. Yep. Okay. Oh yeah. And then there was a lot of advocating that had to happen between myself, my co-author and the illustrator. Like we really had to have collective action to be like, no, we are going with the original book cover. And there's so many reasons why, right? Like in my mind, I am thinking about white families purchasing this book and this book cover, Diana, who's the illustrator. Mm -hmm. This is a piece of artwork by a black woman. Yes. This may be the only time or the first experience non-Black folks have to Black art Mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. a book cover, right? Like that is really powerful, the message. Also, we opened the show talking about anti-Blackness. Children have already picked up anti-Blackness by four years old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We need to center Blackness 
in a way that it is associated with innocence. It's associated Mm -hmm. with um, children. It's associated with playfulness. It's associated Mm. with learning and love, right? Like there are so many reasons why I specifically sought out Diana as the book illustrator. Yes. And her work. And to also say like, this is worthy to be on book covers for children, for caregivers, for parents. It's perfect. It's just like, it's just, it's uh, honestly, I saw it and it made sense. mm, mm, mm. But I do see that though. I see what happens with, um, you know, in the, within the publishing world, the anxiety that ensues the moment it's like, oh, you know, we've have to present this to white potential white readers. How do we make them as comfortable as possible? But how about we don't? Not mm-hmm. that malicious, there's no malice in it, but how about we don't, we keep talking about this anti-racist world that we want, yet every time we are buckling um, when it comes to the fact that white people might feel uncomfortable with something. So then how does how does the power dynamic ever change? At what point then do you stop doing that? So it just seems like a lot of talking. So I like that um, even within the title, even it says here, it's a practical guide, which it is like, let's look at everyday solutions to things like rather than lofty ideas of what we would like, everyday conversations, everyday discussions, discourse around how we navigate that, you know, the, 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 the things, the very, very finely nuanced things that can go unperceived yet Mm -hmm. have such long lasting and far reaching, um, consequences. I want to, I want to mention two things. I'm going to tell you the first thing, so I don't forget it, but it's about Dr. Kira Banks piece in the book. The second Mm -hmm. thing I want to mention is, um, and that is how come, and rightfully so there've been critics of Mm anti-racism. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. what I have watched when I first started, and I know anti-racism has existed. I love how Tiffany Jewell said, as long as we've had racism, we've always had anti-racism. Of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like people have always resisted racism. So I will say racism has existed as long as anti-racism has existed as long as racism. So I am still pretty new in my anti-racist journey. I came into anti-racism uh, probably around 2013 was really mm-hmm. the first time. I heard this, you know, the, heard the phrase mm-hmm. and really heard it, not just like glossed over it, but like mm-hmm. really like my first time I read an article. Um, and I've like watched between then until now the centering of whiteness yeah. that happens in anti-racism. And that is a rightful critique. And which is why I'm like, there's no way. And it was funny, the publisher had came back and they had offered a different book cover, which was making the girl with the blonde hair, making her pink. So it was like, and then the boy in the middle blue. And I was like, how did we get back to 1990? No, it doesn't matter if you were pink, green, purple. No, because we were not doing that. No, I'm not racist. I haven't got a racist bone in my my body. body. I don't care if you're pink, green, but that we're not talking about pink and green people. We're talking about real people. I was like, no, I was like, that's why I was like, y'all have to trust me. I was like, you have to trust me. I was like, this is not, it's not going to age well. Um, and so, but it's just so much century. And that's one thing I like about in the book. So I have 15 contributing authors yes. in the book and um, three of them are white or white passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of them are folks of the global majority or indigenous. Mm-hmm. And that was really important for me to create space 
so that we all can listen and learn to how other families are also practicing anti-racism yes. Yes. and to center folks of the global majority. So that makes me, remind me of um, Dr. Kira Banks' piece. Mm-hmm. Back to your, you had original question about how do we help our children basically not personalize racism, yes, right? Yes, yes, like, yes. And the very first piece in here is written by Dr. Kira Banks, who's yep. incredible, been following her work for a while. And she's a good friend at this point. Um, and she talks about, and she defines appropriated racial oppression and appropriated racial superiority. She uses those terms instead of internalized. And I think it's really important. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read just some sections of her yes, book. Yes, please. Um, Okay, so appropriated racial oppression is the extent to which people of the global majority accept the dominant group's idea that people of the global majority are subordinate, inferior, and deficient. Appropriated racial superiority, then, is the extent to which white people accept their group's idea that white people are dominant, superior, and natural leaders. And kids can understand these ideas as soon as they understand the story. As young as preschool, they notice who's seen as good, bad, smart, nice, and naughty. They watch scenes unfold in living rooms, playrooms, classrooms, and on screens. And it's important for us as adults to be proactive and counter these inaccurate messages. Um, One way we can interrupt the appropriation of these stories is by naming the myths and lies as they come up around us. Mm -hmm. And that's something that in our household, like whenever we notice racism, when our children were young, so um, Kobe was like as young as two, that we would name it as a lie or a tale. Good. You know, oh, that's a really old tale. Or mm. I can't believe they're still telling that tale. Mm, mm. And then that was the way we introduced it to him when he was really um, young. And then around five, six, we explicitly introduced a definition of racism mm-hmm. to him. But what I really like in here, she tells a story about her um, child. For example, one day my nine-year-old had a baseball game. His team had several black and brown boys and the other team was all white. After the game, one little white boy refused to high five the black and brown boys on our team. When talking to my son, I reminded him that some white people had picked up the idea that they were better than black people. This little boy might've been taught that black people were not worthy of his high five. Quote, that's a lie. And it's sad he learned that. I said, quote, his, his actions say nothing about you and a lot about the ideas that he has picked up. Research supports the idea that helping kids understand racism and help them not personalize it. My son did not dwell on whether he deserved the discrimination. He understood it was the other boy's problem rather than accepting the burden of feeling inferior as a result of the discrimination. And I think that is so important because Mm -hmm. I grew up the opposite. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a household that heavily worked towards assimilation. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a household that was all about how do we make white people comfortable? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I get it. It was a survival tactic, both from my grandparents to my parents. And my dad will just tell me these really horrific, physically violent altercations he had in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was standard practice here in the United States in the 60s, 70s, 80s, as mm-hmm. we had forced integration. Mm-hmm. But I grew up then coming into my twenties of being like, well, how can I just be nicer? Mm. How can I like smile more? How can I like just make sure that, you know, I'm like fun and friendly. And instead what I started doing when I practiced anti-racism, I started healing and being like, you know what? That's not my problem. It's your problem. Yes. 
And I didn't personalize. I was like, yeah, it's nothing to do with me. And the other day, a racist incident happened to Kobe, long story short. And someone had told him he didn't belong in a group. And Kobe said, why? And they said, well, it's because you're black. And Kobe was like, that's racist. Mm-hmm. And the other child was like, what's racist? And Kobe was like, oh. someone because of the color of their skin. And the child just said, oh, okay. And when Kobe came home and he told me about it, he's like eating pizza. And I said, you know, well, how are you feeling? Or I don't know. Mm-hmm. I said something. He just was like, mm. he was like, they picked up an old lie. And, they, and he goes, I hope they put it back down. And he oh, just like went back Kobe, to- it's my boot. Like, Kobe. <laughs> he went back to his pizza. And I like looked at my husband and he looked at me and we were like, okay. We did all right. We're doing yeah. all right. <laughs> like we don't, we personally, as the black family, we don't have to do this like long drawn out conversation. We don't have to try to fix this problem yeah. with somebody else. We don't have to necessarily like go up to the school. Like mm-hmm. I sent an email to the teacher and was yeah. like, these are the three things that I want to happen. I don't want any child to experience prejudice on campus. Mm-hmm. I want the child to know what they said was inaccurate. And I want the child to know what they said was harmful. But that's it. Done. Other than that, we're going on about our life. Literally, Kobe was eating pizza. Like, look, one thing about me is I'm going to eat. Okay. So whatever, whatever is going on. And I love that because... It's what, you know, one of the things I do talk about a lot on the podcast is that what what, um, these experiences do is that they stop us from feeling our joy. They stop us. They distract us, like Toni Morrison has described, from moving towards that joy, embodying that joy and being present in the now and within the joy. And so the fact that Kobe, you've, um, you and your husband are working towards, you know, a household and a home that doesn't let that live there means that while we acknowledge it and we are aware of it and work is being done around it, the joy will be centered. Peace mm-hmm. will be centered because that's the only way that we're actually going to be able to live and like truly live, not simply survive. That's right. That's right. And not to be distracted, mm. right? Like Kobe, you have your work to do. And, and I had told him, I said, so what did you do? And he said, well, I just got my work and went back to my desk. Oh, he said, he goes, he goes, I did what you taught me. He goes, I removed myself. I got my work. Mm-hmm. I went back to my desk and I finished my work. And I said, good. Cause that is your job. You are <laughs> like, you are there to have fun. You're there to be with friends. You're there to learn. And so anytime a situation doesn't serve you, guess what? You can leave. Yeah. Remove yourself. Yeah. You do- and I wish I would have learned that earlier instead of like this idea. And I didn't know that when I had left the classroom, right? When I left the classroom, I mourned that decision for probably like two years, mm-hmm. really mourned it. And while there is a truth that white supremacy takes, right. And it like took me out of my classroom, the thing mm-hmm. that I knew that I loved to do at the same time. And I remember feeling weak. Like I didn't want to leave a part of me was like, no, like we can like fight and get through this and make it mm-hmm. better. But it was like, you know what? There's a lot of strength of, I'm going to remove myself from this situation. Mm-hmm. Because it's not serving me or my children, the folks that we are supposed to be working towards. Mm-hmm. I can't spend all of my time working with the white children of like how to help them to identify the racism and unfairness mm-hmm. while simultaneously black children, children of color, indigenous children are experiencing racism. Now I'm just contributing to something being very performative. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And I, and I, I'm just so excited by your work and the fact that this is happening and these books are out there. Like I've got for my son, we've got anti-racist baby. I'm just looking at his bookshelf. We've got various, you know, books. I was very intentional from the moment, you know, 
um, that I knew that he was going to, you know, come earthside. I was just like, cool, I'm, you know, I've got to have these things ready. I've got to have these books. So even in the things that he watches, all of that. And then there's a part of me that's like waiting, waiting. And that's sad. I feel prepared, but you, it's just the fact that one waits and knows that there'll be things and conversations to be had. So this is why I do feel like your work is necessary. And, you know, all of this, you know, the unlearning, the, re, you know, the learning, the remembering, um, mm-hmm. the discarding of the misremembering, all of those things are important for us to actually have a world where we're not normalizing things that aren't actually normal. Yes. That's literally, I wrote this on, on my sticky note. You said it earlier and you said normalize yeah. and I wrote it down. It was when we were talking about the mass shootings and yes. it's, we cannot normalize. We can't normalize any of this. And I think that's mm. why it's so important that we talk about it. Yeah. Right. Because what's happening. And it was interesting when we were having that conversation with Kobe and I had said, so this week, your principal said, you're going to do another active shooting drill. And Kobe said, oh, okay, just like that. Oh. And my partner was like, wait, do you know what that is? And see, I'm a teacher. So in my mind, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, by law, we have to practice it at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. And Kobe was like, yeah, that's when um, the first and second graders have to hide and the cubbies and the mm-hmm. third graders go someplace else. And that if you see, if you, but, they, but they don't call them a shooter. They just call them a, I think, intruder or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you see the intruder, you're supposed to throw things at them. Yeah, and you could just see like my, and again, this is Kobe's first year back in school. Um, he hasn't been in school since he was four. Mm. So this experience is new both for Kobe, but for my partner, mm-hmm. to, like go through this. And when you said normalized earlier, I just, it stuck with me. Cause I said, wow, I have normalized. I've normalized it, mm. but I didn't even, I think that I haven't. But the way that I just was like, yeah, you know, you're going to have another active shooter drill, that shooter drill this week. And just like, yeah. like it's a fire drill. I don't know yeah. why people keep comparing it to fire drills. And I'm so tired of that, by the but way. It's right. Do, do you know, like a fire. Well, we can have all lo- long conversations, but a fire is not a sentient being like, so it's, you know, it starts in, it's not malicious in that way. A fire starts and they are rare. Right. In that sense, but it's good to so kind of know. Right. But unfortunately. Shooters, mass shooters are rather frequent. So it, it, it can't be compared in the same way. And the most heartbreaking thing is I never want to bring people down, but you know, like when we do those kind of airplane drills or they do, you get on mm-hmm. the safety, the safety um, things. And it says, oh, and if your plane is going down, just put your head between your legs and cover your head. And as if it's the same, but it's like, no, so it's, so they can have as much of your skull left when you crash so they can identify you by your dental records. And that's how my brain works. Like we use language in a way to yeah. soften things for people. And I do understand why we do, but then people don't have the whole story. They think, well, if I do that, maybe the cra- uh, the crash or whatever will have less impact that on me. It's me. like, yeah, but it's like, no, it's not going to save you. You just get to be identified, hopefully. Um, and so it's the same way I think about this, where I just feel like personally, I have not been okay since a lot of it since we've, um, I don't know if you've heard, you heard about Child Q in the UK, a, a young black girl around lockdown times, um, 
She went to school, she was trying to do her exams and um, she was on her period a dark skinned black girl, they, the teachers white um, accused her of smelling like cannabis. And so they called the police to the school. She I took her out of her exams. And he did an intimate search, told her to bend over all of that stuff, strip searched her. Um, mm-hmm. There were her parent, her mom was not informed. She was in a, a room with um, the police by herself. The teacher was outside. So there was no safeguarding. You know, that's our measure here in the UK for children. There's no, there was no safeguarding. There was nobody there for her. And then they sent her back to the exam, mm-hmm. even though she told them she was on her period. So how, undignified she must have felt to come to be stripped down naked told to bend over and cough like if she if the cannabis has made it that far like let her have it like what are you doing you know but it's the fact that she was she was simply accused of it they didn't think if she's smelling like that is she around people or what could be going on they were there was none of that um and yet she was still expect um, expected to continue with her exams. And then now we have this um, incident with um, Raheem Bailey and we've had this incident um, with, um, uh, I think, um, um, I think um, um, uh, one of the, a black child, a young black person that managed to get away from their group when they were on a day out. Um, they had, you know, mental health um, issues and they were out, they somehow got away and when the police were informed that they should be gentle when they, you know, interact with the girl, they weren't, they used a baton on um, her like um, more than 30 times and then tased her as well. Mm even though they were made aware of these things. And to them, we have the Buffalo shooting. And then I know we've had other things happen. Plus now we've had this um, mass shooting um, in Texas as well. I just haven't felt okay. And then thinking about children, Sandy Hook wasn't enough. Columbine wasn't nothing. Children aren't enough. Because to me, that's children are everything. That should be the point where You know, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, as you mentioned earlier, we know that there are other places. We know that there are places in the world where this kind of things happen to children all the time. And we it doesn't get over to us in the media because of the way that they're othered. Um, These people are othered in society. But it's the fact that like we're seeing it, these children's faces, pictures of them. It's very, very hard to 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 sit with and say. Oh, you know what? Thoughts and prayers. I feel like I'm out of thoughts and prayers. And so when we're talking about this drill and the children are being told, you know, throw things at them and wave your arms. The reality is that, yeah, they've made you the front line because if you get hit, you're buying time for your, your other friends to get away. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, school districts hear that governments hear that congressmen everybody hear that they hear this and they think that that's a that's okay exactly it's it's disgusting it really is an idea and that and that's like it's like i don't and you hear that a lot within educators particularly administrators that will try to compare like an active shooter drill so like you know we practice fire drills and we practice tornado drills and they keep us safe and it's like That is such a sanitized idea Mm -hmm. of reality, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, but also along with us practicing fire drills, are we also going to talk about how we have fire codes too that we have to have just like there's, um, we have a school here and they have overcrowding. It's a high school. They have about 3000 kids in the high school. I think they're they're pushing about 4,000. And so 
now what they do for that high school is the students don't actually move from class to class. They have to stay still. And the teacher, so it's like an elementary classroom, essentially, okay. and the teachers move, right? Okay. And the idea is because it's against the fire code to have that many people moving in a hallway or in the um, stairwell, mm-hmm. because if something was to happen, a fire breaks out, Cross. you can't yeah, get to yeah, safety, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? We have all of these fire codes. This is why you have the fire marshal come out a couple times a year and they go yeah. through, they double check your alarms. They tell you what you can't have as a teacher. I can't have a space heater in my freezing classroom because Mm -hmm. it's against a fire code, right? We Mm -hmm. have all of these precautions. And so to try to compare it as if it's the same as a fire or some natural disaster, like a Mm -hmm. tornado, right? Is just, it's asinine. And I think it's very disrespectful Mm -hmm. to all parties involved and say, actually, we have no safety protocols in place. Mm -hmm. Us giving you the ability to lock your door from the inside what? Like, oh, that was the solution? <laughs> the bucket of stones. Like, wow. Even though my door, by the way, is half glass, because you also have to be oh. able to look inside of, that's like a whole nother thing, but, but you have to be able to look inside of a classroom, right? Mm-hmm, you can't mm-hmm. have kids in a box. Yeah. So, so you mean my door that's half glass that I then have to like go. It's just like, no, we need to yeah. call it what it is. Mm-hmm. We also need to hold uh, politicians accountable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we also need to hold ourselves accountable. I'm like specifically talking to um, folks in the United States. Mm-hmm. We need to hold ourselves accountable for the people that we're voting in. Yeah. And we need to have some collective action. I don't know what that collective action looks like, whether that's protesting schools mm-hmm. and everyone goes on a strike until we pass a national or uh, federal gun control laws. Mm-hmm. Like I, leg- I don't know if it's the parents. Right. Yeah. If teachers are like, I, I don't have the ability to go on strike, especially if you live in Texas, we're a right to work state. And so it is literally illegal to strike in Texas. Wow. Um, so that's parents having collective action saying, I'm going to keep my kid home. Yeah. Civil right? disobedience, I think, is is necessary because I was, you know, I, I love a bit of tarot. I love tarot. And I that was where I found solace. As much as people might have their views, I, I was just like, where is America headed? Where is the world headed? What's happening? And it was just like, you know what, what's going to happen is that people are going to be forced to be community seekers. We've always known that community is integral to our liberation. And so actually it's unlikely to be politicians who've eventually moved to control, you know, put any sort of control on guns. It's going to be parents, as you say. So intuitively, we all know, we, we know it's going to be parents. It's going to be communities of people going, you know what, in this community, no guns, none of that. We're not doing that. So, you know, you, you can't be here if that's how you're getting down. You're not doing that. And more and more and more and more people will be doing that same thing. So even if you still want to have it as law, simply people are not going to adhere to it in their communities and communities will become more closed off in that regard. That is what I see, not just for America, but in, you know, in terms of the wider conversation within our global society, more people are going to say, well, these are my views. Do you want to come with me? Should we, you know, work, you know, work around this to benefit each other? And I, I, I see it and I, and I, and I respect it. I think that, you know, it's, we need something because sometimes it's so hard, you know, we get into that space of, well, well, how should I be expected to think about the solution? Because I'm still trying to survive. Right. But then sometimes the solution is also in the survival in that 
we're having these conversations. We're having conversations with other people. We're all wanting similar things. So naturally I feel like these things will come about. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that, um, collectivism is the way. Yeah. And because individualism is not going to save us and that's no. where we are at and it's not, it's not going to save us. And we see that. Right. So I will say on that note, <laughs> a, a lot of folks do ask me either why, why do you continue to do the work or like, how mm-hmm. do you, how do you stay engaged in the work? So I'd like to ask you, <laughs> how do you stay engaged and, or why do you continue to do the work? Um, I was going to ask you the same. So here we are. Um, but no, I, I think that for me, or I feel that there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Like, you know, you described when you around, was it 2013, coming across, you know, really taking in the term, really taking in the term anti-racism. For me, it just feels like that about life, you know, life. I finally, through therapy and all of these things, I finally understand what it is to live. And I know that there's still so much living to do. And once you experience something, I think that beautiful, it's just like overwhelming in, in its expansiveness and the, the beauty of it. You want as many people to experience that as possible, because then when you have spent so long not living and how isolating and how debilitating even that that can feel you recognize it in other people and so you know that there is a possibility for them to also experience what you're experiencing in the terms of what it feels to be alive what it feels to show up in places as your whole self of not leaving yourself behind of not rejecting yourself um objectifying yourself in certain regards although you know these are lifelong journeys it's not like an ultimate you know destination as it were um but you experience that and you just want it for as many people as possible. And so when I'm making the podcast, all of these things, I'm, I don't try to, uh, you know, present it in any other way that, than it is, you know, it's, it's just an un, unfiltered me. Um, you know, I talk about myself being a dickhead in recovery because I think that there are so many things that I have appropriated as described, you know, I've appropriated these things thinking I need them to live. And then when you start giving them up, you start to see that actually that's when living starts and you want living for as many people as possible. And so imagine that we've got a planet of people who are not, a majority are not living due to systems and institutions, stopping them from doing so. And other people who think that they're benefiting from these systems um, and institutions, statistics say that they're not, then they're struggling as well. So none of us are happy in this dynamic, no matter the morsels or the crumbs that we think that we're getting from it. So it's imperative that, we move towards life, that we we have to move towards life because we are in this space of death, yet we spend time fearing death when actually that's where we currently are. We are, we are dying, we are in death, but there's still so much living that it's in it's intrinsic to our experience here, it's integral to our experience here that we, you know, that we experience it. So that's why I keep doing it because it, you know, people talk about, oh, it gives me life, but it it does, it it gives me life. Um how about you? Yeah. And what you were saying too, you have a recent podcast episode, you were talking about the ego. 
Yes. And it just like, I made a connection between collectivism challenges the ego constantly, which is why I think sometimes maybe it's hard for us then to choose, right. Collective actions or communal actions in that way. Um, Communal parenting in that Mm -hmm. way, because it challenges that idea of like, well, I know what's best for my child. I'm going to parent my child the way I want to. You Mm -hmm. parent your child the way you want to and leave us alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we have to go back to like, and for those of us that have left that, we have Mm -hmm. to go back to an intergenerational way of parenting our children. Yeah. Um, But everything you said, like I was over here just being like, teach us, teach us. (laughs) Because I agree. I agree that. So I continue to choose anti-racist work really out of something super selfish. Mm -hmm. And that is, I am learning how to be my most authentic self, Mm -hmm. right? Like anti-racism has been that vehicle for me, but I have learned how to set boundaries. I've learned how to advocate for myself. I've learned how to not allow people to gaslight me. Mm -hmm. I've learned not to have imposter syndrome. All of that has been through me understanding the way that systems, whether it's like banking, finance, healthcare, education, housing, all of that has racism embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And that it's not me trying to fight for these crumbs, right? Or mm-hmm. it, it, it's not about, it's not me. It's these systems that need to get blamed and held accountable and dismantled and rebuilt, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it's kind of why I continue to do it. And then how, you know, I try to work really hard. Anytime that I get overwhelmed, I just tell myself, I don't get overwhelmed, I get clear. Mm-hmm. And that helps me a lot. So when I t- I tend to get overwhelmed with my emotions. Yeah, same. And with the mass shooting that happened in um, within the Black community in Buffalo, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I had to really sort out my emotions and say like, okay, who was harmed? Who caused the harm? And who enabled or empowered that harm? Yes. And then that way I could say, okay, for the Black community, you know, I'm, I'm almost at a loss of words with just the grief and the mourning that I feel, the deep sadness and the hurt. But then for the white terrorist, it's like, okay, I am angry. I yeah. am frustrated. I'm also disgusted, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Like I can have all of those feelings. And then the folks who enable and empower, um, you know, I'm definitely thinking about Trump. I think about Fox News, I think about mm. um, p- politicians, like uh, just everyone who who allows this nonsense, hateful, white supremacist rhetoric, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic rhetoric, anti-Black mm. rhetoric, yeah. who empowers that, right? Yeah. And then I have my feelings <clears throat> for them. And so once I kind of try to get clear... Then uh, from that point, I can start to say, where am I going to do the work and how? Yeah. Right. And so is there any work that I could do for that black community that's in Buffalo, whether that's as a family, you know, we had something, we had a going out planned and instead it was like, Hey, I saw that they have a community fridge. Can we take that money instead and redistribute to that community? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the other two people who are two groups that are guilty. It's what are we do? And so in our house, we have these like I, little Ikea picture frames yes. downstairs on our rating. 
but we have um, like the mayor's name, phone number, address, the governor, the attorney general. We have all of those folks like written down. Yes. And so then it's like, are we going to write letters? Are we going to tweet? Like yeah. me yeah. trying to get my kids involved because I don't want them to grow up and become apathetic. I don't want them to normalize yes. this nonsense yeah. and be like, well, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. It's like, no, actually <laughs> it's not. This can be prevented and we all have a role to play in preventing this. This is yes. this was not some once in a lifetime attack that caught us all off guard. We couldn't believe yes. that it happened. Like we need to stop pretending that it's the that. shock. Yeah. yeah. Constantly shocked. Oh my God. Ugh. This is not the America that I know. Baby, it's the, yes. it's the only America. It's the only America that's ever been. So we, at what point does it change? This yeah. is not the America that I know. This is not, this is not the country that I know. Well, you clearly don't know. Know it very well. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm so, sorry to you, you know? I love my friend, Antonia. She always says like, once at a blue moon, she'll say, you know, at this point, ignorance is a choice. Yes. Right. And that's like how I feel when people, and I, you know, like what happened yesterday was I am shocked. And then how, how quickly can I move through that? Mm. Like quick is, I don't know what it, I need to move through that shock and like yeah. that horror and that surprise yeah. and be like, you know what? This is the reality. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, people get stuck in that shock for, and, and I don't know about for y'all, but for here, things always seem like a sprint and not a marathon. Yeah. Right. And I told my partner, I said, you know what? This is going to be nonstop for 72 hours. Yes. And that's the sprint. And then, and then people move on to another. Until the next thing. Well, meanwhile, numerous things are happening. It's just the ones that they feel, you know, can make the new cycle. You know, yes. and and then constantly we are. So it's 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 even there's even you know priorities um given to which story, what's that mm-hmm. going to push? You know, what's that going to and push in terms of an agenda? What what conversations are we going to have around this? So we are constantly in that state of hypervigilance. Um, hypervigilance. We're constantly in that state of being overstimulated. Mm-hmm. So there has to be that kind of point where. We're like, I know that so many things are happening, but I, for my own mental well being, need to pull back recenter myself so I can be of use to myself and also of use to other people. And even the idea of use, I use that very loosely because it's not about how much we produce, because again, Mm -hmm. that goes back into the capitalist mindset of just like, I, I, I exist, therefore I work, you know, I work, therefore I am. No, Mm -hmm. no, no, I, I, I am. Yeah, I am. I'm over here. Like I rest. Yes, therefore I am. I love that. And in the sign off of your emails, it says that we practice radical rest. So yeah, you know, we'll respond when we respond. And I'm like, that is how we move people towards a new way of interacting with each other. Don't message me and then be expecting me to respond within five minutes or you know, g- give things time. Let's yes. slow down. Yeah, that sense of urgency. And I think that's something else too, is when we're having these conversations with our kids, it's not. So it's like two things. It's so I see people getting stuck in shock for that, that 72 hours. Yeah, yeah. And by the time they're like, okay, I'm not shocked anymore. The country collectively has mm-hmm. moved on to mm-hmm. something else. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, darn, I missed my moment, which is wow. why it's like, you know what, if you're shocked, okay, be there for five minutes and move through it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to say, oh gosh, what, what was I going to say? Um, 
I don't know. I know we mentioned radical. Yeah, the radical rest. You're, you're like, maybe like, that's that's what I'm, I need. No, no yeah. I even, no, I need it. I need it. I I've said to myself, even after you know, just after this week, I'm resting. I took some time off socials, but I mean actual physical rest. I'm going to do that now because I know that I I'm need so it. Um, and that's important. I and I I wouldn't do that before. I would just keep going, keep going, keep going until I got ill, and then I would be forced to rest. And even then, I'm still trying to like do little things. Whereas now, it's just like no. Before we even get to that point, block out on my PA. Like Vanessa, I'll just block out my diary. I'm not doing anything for the next two weeks. Um, and that's just it. You know, yes. I I I want that time because it's in the rest. It's in the stillness that you get to commune with the the point of all of this, like the force of all of this. And I want to get back to that because I feel like the more that I do, the less time that I have to be in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that. But um, I've seen here, I'm just on, I was on the site that um, in terms of buying the book that um, you can, it's mainly, it's, we can get it online because we're in the UK, right? So we can get it online because we've got Amazon here that we can get it yeah. from. And I think it comes out in July for the UK. So it comes out in July for us. Okay, cool. Perfect. Yep. Perfect. So I will um, put that date and I'll add a link as well. So the listeners can get involved because I know that with the number of listeners that you're always asking me for books and recommendations and raising and um, raising anti-racist children, a practical parenting guide is where you need to be at because having contributors, having people bring their different perspectives, having, you know, this, com- these very, very important conversations. I feel like that's where we need to find ourselves. If we're not talking these things through, if we're kind of feeling shame about having conversations that I don't know how I'm going to articulate this. I don't know how I'm meant to navigate this. Then nothing ever gets done because there are way too many children whiling out in school for, for conversations to be happening at home. You know, mm-hmm. something there, there's a, there's a disconnect. a disconnect. So this is how we move towards that. But thank you so much, Britt, for joining me today. And um, hopefully when you're in London, you come through, come through physically onto the podcast. I cannot wait. I have never been to London, so um, it's definitely on my wish list to go yeah. to. And I would love that. Thank you so much for having me, for making space and um, highlighting the book. And I am rooting for you. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Thank you so much. So I hope that you enjoyed that interview with myself and Britt Hawthorne. Big up yourself, Britt. Two slaps on your chest for doing the work that you're doing um, with your wonderful children. Kobe really giving me all the best vibes and just great, you know, great advice and living his life wonderfully. I freaking love to see it. Um, So yeah, uh, Raising Anti-Racist Children, it's out June 7th. June 7th is when it's actually out. So, um, do try to, you know, get that for yourself, especially, um, you people that say that, oh, you know, the children are the future and they'll change things. And it's just a different generation that were behaving that way. Well, this is your time to make sure that your children aren't being little racists and, um, you know, you can help build an anti-racist world. Um, so yeah, so that's that for share your magnificence for So You Mad. I only have two things I want to touch on. There's a creator called Ahiz. He E-H-I-Z, like one of the biggest, I think he's the biggest TikTok account in the UK, wasn't he? Um, his page got, um, his TikTok got deleted. I don't know what's happened since then. Maybe they've, um, you know, reinstated it. I don't know. But, um, 
from the last that I heard, um, it was deleted. There's a story about him from like 2021 that says he was a homeless student and he becomes TikTok star with 10 million followers earning three thousand pounds a month this was last year and he um his page was deleted at um twelve thousand um yeah his page was deleted at twelve thousand now i'm not too up to date with the um what happened but i know that from what i understand he offended the south asian community um by kind of lip syncing to a song i believe please correct me if i'm wrong he was like um singing to a song that they said was a religious song and they found it um, offensive. And I guess instead of apologizing, he kind of doubled down on it twice. Um, And well, I guess they all got together and, you know, got that page out of here. But um, I'm just seeing um, what it says basically, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's very sad it's very very sad and you know I guess his argument was well I've made other videos you know I've made other videos where I've been lip-syncing various songs but I feel like when a group of people and this is something I'm not just saying it from again I'm not saying it from a holier than thou position I'm saying like if a group of people tell you that nah what you said there was offensive and it's offensive for these reasons or what you've done there is offensive for these reasons pay attention pay attention because we all do lack cultural sensitivity whether we realize it or not and it's important to not basically um but on the i'm um, but and rather than but on the flip side of that what kind of gets me about this whole situation is how quickly you know people can lose their livelihoods just like that like your livelihood gone if like your main source of income was um you know, if your main source of income was this TikTok page with 12 million followers and you've got brands and deals lined up because, you know, things are um, scheduled like weeks and months ahead, what now happens to all of that? And, you know, this isn't a case of like me going, and now, you know, I'm wagging my finger, but it's just a reminder to you lot that, like I've been saying, when Pluto finally goes into Aquarius, social media is going to look very different to what we currently know it to be. And so it's important to get your ducks in a row. Like, I have this podcast and I, I, and I know that I'll be able to distribute this podcast in one way or another, whether it's on my website or whatever, I'll be able to do that. But social media, I'm moving away from it more and more because it's not mine. Essentially, I'm giving it all of this wonderfulness. I'm giving it all of this incredible content only for the motherfuckers to then shadow ban me when I'm saying things that people really need to hear and what they need to understand because they're prioritizing getting you to spend money and feel as empty as possible. Like those are the things that they're pushing. Any real conversation that you want to have, they co-op the conversation and they make it some some something else and fill it with pastel colors and then that's it so like not it's hard to understand but or I feel like in some ways it's very easy to understand social media is not ours it's not ours like no matter how well you've built your page no matter how much engagement you get on your page it's not fucking yours because at the end of the day if they pull it down it's gone you know and I've had my Instagram taken down before all of um, all because of that Clemmy Hooper incident and you know got it reinstated luckily but you know like yeah just be careful get your mailing list together 
have a website, have somewhere that you're trying to go outside of just being an influencer. Like there has to be more to life than being an influenza. Like I see that more um, people who have come up through um, social media and TikTok and stuff are doing as much as they can to like branch out and be involved in various things, but also kind of make sure that you know how to do those things as well. You're willing to learn how to do do those things well, rather than just like launching yourself into it. I know that I, I usually say that God will train you on the job, but some of you get foundational training at least. But anyway, like it's good to be branching out and not relying solely on, oh, you know, I've got this number of followers because anything can get locked off tomorrow. So make sure that you've got something else outside of that, that's substantial that can, that you can, that you can have outside of the internet or like outside of social media, basically, because the internet will be there, but just outside of social media. But I still don't know the ins and outs of that whole story, but I, it did catch me. And, and I just thought to myself, you know, that is, um, really horrible you know that that happened I don't I don't condone like obviously um speaking or doing things that other cultures of people find disrespectful but I'm just thinking about like going from being homeless to then getting money and then 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 that source of income then basically being locked off but you know this is why accountability and and you know thinking well and you know you, you know being guided is is very much um encouraged but I don't, I, again I don't like when people are speaking on me and they don't know too much about me so I'm not trying to speak on anybody I don't know too much about in this case um but I did for me it's more the, the fact that we have to consider that social media can go at any time and what are we doing to make sure that we're okay um so yeah that was my first so you mad and then my second so you mad um I saw that this, um, uh, what's her name? This author, a white woman author by the name of, what is it? Trish? Is it Trish? Let's see here. Trish Lawrence. Is it Trish Lawrence? Make sure I've got that right before I drag her clot. Um, yes, Trish Lawrence. So the young disruptors of an African megacity, five questions to Trish Lawrence's. Um, she's a nine dots prize winner. Trish Lawrence talks about her book on the Sorosuke generation in African megacities and what inspired her to write it. So basically Trish Lawrence um, put a book together called um, Sorosuke. And that means speak up, you know, speak up. Soro is to speak. Soke is to louder. Soro Soke. She didn't even put all of the, she didn't put all the intonations that you should even put on the thing, but it's probably good because they would have dragged her some more. So when you read it, it just says Soro Soak, really. It just says Soro Soak. Um, it's uh, Soro Soke, the young disruptors of um, an African megacity. Um, and, you know, she's won awards for this. And, um, you know, people are dragging her. People are dragging her, rightly so, because if anybody's going to tell the the story of the NSARS movement, should it not be actual Nigerians? Should it at least let it be a black person? But should it not actually be Nigerians who are telling their own stories? I'm so tired of the publishing industry thinking that white people know shit or that white people know everything, um, you know, and everything. They now need to be a benchmark for what everybody else does. I was having this conversation recently in a regra- regards to like, even when authors are doing rollouts and for their publications, for their books that are coming out, everyone's still working to a white calendar. Not everybody wants to go on fucking woman's hour. Not, and I'll say it with my chest. Not everybody wants to go on fucking woman's hour. Outside of that, outside of, is it Dolly Alderton or whatever, whatever, what do you have as a publicist? What do you have? What, what more do you know? After white 
after working with white calendars and being like, oh, these are the places that we need to, what do you know outside of that? Nothing. So you're not even culturally competent. You're, you're not conversant at all with all the places that you should be placing people in because everybody does the same thing over and over and over again. Get imaginative. Get innovative. What is this? We are bored. We are bored of seeing the same thing over and over and over again. Like, do something different. And that's your job. Isn't that your job? Think of new, exciting ways to get your authors out there. Do something different. But then back to this conversation, though, the publication world or the publishing world as a a whole is so draconian and it's so antiquated. And I personally, I can't help when my voice gets spicy when people are asking me things. And I'm like, you're only asking me that from a white, from a from a position, from a white lens. You're looking at my work through a white lens. And so that's what I was referring to the person who wrote in for the tarot reading earlier. Your book not getting published is actually not so much of a reflection on you because fucking Trish can decide that she wants to write about the NSARS movement and she gets a hundred K advance, hundred thousand pounds, hundred thousand pounds like you get or hundred whatever um, currency, hundred K they gave you to write about a story that's not fucking yours. And why did they do that? Because they want you to tell the stories of um, black people's experiences to other white people. That's a whole fucking market. It's a whole entire market where white people talk to each other about or every or about non-white people. And like, we're not an anthropology subject. Like, let and, and I bet a black person, a Nigerian person wanting to tell the, a similar story, not similar because theirs would actually bang, they want to talk about it from a very nuanced, very personal perspective. Watch how the publishers will be like, oh, but we just wonder how we can make it universal so we can make sure that lots of people, you know, like it and, you know, can get it. And then they're going to fucking lowball you, give you one shit advance because they're not sure that it's going to sell. But for some reason, they're sure that Trish is going to, um, Trish's book is going to sell so they can give her a 100K advance. Um, oh yeah, well, she's done things before she's done this. She's done, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Because what it comes down to is that no matter how much mental gymnastics that you lot like to do in the publishing industry, you like to give white people more money than non-white people. And then on top of that, you then want to, um, the, the, the non-white people that you then, um, you then big up, they have to be as close to what white people find comforting as possible in order for you to even hype them up in any way. And I've seen it personally, like there are black writers that I'm sorry, their books don't bang. They don't bang. They're actually rather problematic. But the fact is you've marketed it as, oh, it's the, it's the this, it's the that, it's the this. And so you're um, encouraging white people to go and buy it. They do as much as they can to water themselves down to be as palatable as possible on their socials and everything. So more white people can buy their books. And for them, that's the metric of success in it. So I'm not going to knock it. Like if you're happy with that, you're happy with that. But I want a book in the world that people actually have a conversation about who that they talk about it. Like they, they talk about what it means and what it does and what it makes them feel. Not just like, oh, um, you know, Susan, in Hertfordshire, 53 thinks it's a wonderful book. Like good on Susan in it, but I wasn't writing for Susan. I wasn't. So Susan's um, personal preference is not my, it's not the bastion of my existence, you know? So yeah, I think that rightfully Trish is getting dragged and if she wants to cry about it, she can cry about it, but this needs to stop stop telling black people's stories for them because I even feel the same way when I did a I chaired a conversation a while back um Boris Johnson's sister-in-law anyway she wrote a book about the Windrush generation and even then 
I just thought it was interesting. Like you've written this book about the Windrush um, scandal and it's won you lots and lots of awards. But when we're on a panel and I'm asking you explicitly about white supremacist patriarchy, I'm asking you explicitly about racism. You're like, oh, I'm sure that nobody was, um, was, you know, had ill intentions when all of these things happened. I'm sure they were oversight. So why did you write the book? Answer me now. Answer me now. Why did you write the book? Because nobody had ill intentions. Because again, like you struggle to 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 think about things in like a systemic and institutional way, and also to understand that some people just have it in them. They just have it in them to be nasty, to be wicked. Like Theresa May, she's wicked. Amber Rudd, wicked. Wicked people, wicked and nasty, wicked and bad, nasty. Not even wicked and bad because that's good. Then they're just nasty. Jankros, a lot of them, but you can't call it that. Because at the same time as you're writing this book and you swear that you're shaking the table, you also want all of the accolades that come with doing that. Nobody's willing to actually step, um, uh, you know, put their head above the parapet. Everyone's just pretending, pretending that they're shaking tables, but the glass on the table is not even moving and the water is almost coming over the top of it. It's brimming. But even that, the water is not spilling because you're not shaking anything. You can't shake nyash. You can't shake breast. You can't shake brain. You can't shake anything. You can't shake. Just stiff there but pretending. Let black people tell their own stories. Let black people tell their own stories. And if that means that white people or non-black people don't want to read it, then that tells you everything that you need to fucking know, doesn't it? About the state of the world. So that's my, um, so you mad. Um, just wanted to get that off. Um, and then now for Start Your Motors, don't really have much to say about the um, Monaco Grand Prix other than I'm glad that Mick Schumacher is okay because he's, uh, his car blo- broke clean in half. But we're going to have to talk about how feasible it is for a Monaco to still be um, a Grand Prix circuit. Because I mean, like I get it, like it's, you know, it's been around since 1929. It's like classic. It's But I'm sorry, it's a dry race. It's a dry, dry race. Like not more, much can happen. Even at the points when they were like, oh, you can enable DRS. Enable DRS for fucking what? To go where? Where can you go? Where, what can you do with your DRS? After you want to go vroom, vroom, where can you really go? So, I mean, I, I, I've never been. So maybe it's kind of like, why are you, why are you, talk, why are you shouting from, why are you hating from outside of the club? You can't even get in. And I swore I was going to be there this year, but Spirit was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. And when I saw that rain, I said, you know what? I get it because that looked ugh. the rain stopping everything. Everything was delayed. Um, and then um, Mick Schumacher crashing. Um, Nick Nicholas Latifi deciding that he's going to, you know, not just wait for, you know, crash and then get safety car sent out. He will just crash under safety car, you know, bare things, bare things. Um, but I guess like, the most beautiful aspect of it was that Perez won. And I'm really happy for Perez. I'm really glad that Perez won the Monaco Grand Prix because people weren't expecting it. Obviously, I'm gutted for um, Leclerc because is this, what, is this the second year? Was it second or third year? Like, sec- like he's got he's gotten pole and then made nothing of pole position. Hasn't even made the podium. He got did not finish one year. And then this one was just, you know, it was just what it was, you know. So it was um, Perez got first place. Carlos Sainz for Ferrari got second, which is good. Like he hasn't won um, a Grand Prix yet. I don't think Sainz has. So he was really hoping that he would be able to overtake Perez and win. But, you know, Perez did what Perez needed to do. And then Verstappen came third. And 
I just feel like that really showed um, the bad vibes from Verstappen because last week in Barcelona where Perez had to give up his lead to let Verstappen go ahead of him because, oh, it was for the good of the team. He was very much there going, oh, you know, and I have to thank um, Checo because he's the best teammate. Yeah, he's the best teammate when he's moving out of the way for you. But then this race, no one moved out of the way for you. And then when they were interviewing um, um, Energy Drink Don at the end, Verstappen asking him, you know, what he thought of the race, talking about himself like, oh, and, you know, I still have a lead and, you know, it was a good race. Um, You know, we worked hard and, you know, it was good. They literally had to remind him. And do you have anything to say about your teammate, Sergio Perez, who won the race? Oh, yes. Big congratulations to him. What they had to remind you to say that like that didn't come to your mind now. That didn't come to you. And I bet if science had managed to overtake Perez at any point um, on that circuit, I bet the team would have told Perez to drop back one to let Verstappen go ahead of him at that point as well. But, you know, um, Perez clearly made it. Um, known that you know I'm not anybody's second you know I'm not I'm not I'm not second here he won in his own right did what he needed to do and you know what I rate it because he even in terms of qualifying or sorry practice he was doing really really well in practice like he's clearly driving that car well he has a control of the car he he gets it why should he have to move out of the way for Verstappen if you are the number one world champion fight for it then nobody should be having to move out of your way you got gifted Abu Dhabi you can't be gifted every freaking thing work for it you know um I don't have much to say about Mercedes because what can one really say but like I said feel gutted for Leclerc because they um the overcut that happened, all of that stuff. You know, strategy sometimes can just be a fucker. And Ferrari really fucked it for him on strategy. Um, they really fucked it for him. Um, but, you know, one day, one day, you know, and he's been winning other races. I know he would have wanted to win this one because he's a citizen of, um, or he's a Monaco um, national or whatever. So he would have really wanted to win this one. And I guess nobody was really expecting Perez to win because it seemed like they were really scrambling to find a Mexican anthem. But um, also the team didn't celebrate Perez very well. Like they didn't, like the energy was very higgy. The, The energy was very higgy for him. Like it's so clear when you see somebody as a number two driver and they win because it's like that time that Valtteri, when Valtteri won and then he went into the room and everyone had already cleared out, I felt so bad for him. Like it sucks being a number two driver and being treated in that way. Um, but yeah, there needed to be more energy because if you're talking about, oh, well, we need points for the team. He just got you freaking points for the team and Verstappen did by coming third. They managed to see the whole race through, even though there was like red flag this, had to hold off the race here, had to do this, had to do that. Like lots of things were happening, yet they still managed to pretty much, you know, see the end of that race which to me was a freaking miracle um Hamilton came eighth um George Russell came fifth but honestly there wasn't much that could be done but I wanted to say while I'm here massive fuck you to Alonso like Fernando Alonso fuck you like you know like I understand tactics I understand the you know this that this that but I just I he's just giving me bad vibes I rated him before when I said he drove a good race when he was keeping Hamilton behind him for who was he keeping him behind for was it for Ocon that time um I said, oh, you know what? That's cool. But actually, nah, he's a bad vibes guy. Like, because you want to hold on to seventh place, you're now delaying everybody like by freaking 30 seconds. There has to be a regulation that comes in around that. There has to be something because they like, they, they were focusing on giving us regulations about what jewelry and what kind of underwear drivers can wear. Why is there no regulation that Alonso can't do what he, what the fuck he was doing in that race by holding everybody back? Knowing that there's no real place for anyone to really overtake. 
And then there's no conversation about um, when Verstappen crossed the line. That is that not being investigated, or would that lose the would that lose the Golden Boy points? Bear madness, bear madness. Anyway, the race finished. Um, the top ten were let's see. Um, yeah, Perez first, Sainz second, Verstappen third, um, Leclerc fourth, Russell fifth, Norris sixth. Alonso 7th, Hamilton 8th, Bottas 9th and Vettel 10th. That's really that's really a lot, you know. That's really a lot. There are three, what's it? Four world champions in the top 10. Is it four? Vettel, Hamilton, Alonso and Verstappen. Yeah, I'd say the four world champions in the top 10. Um yeah, it sucks for Leclerc from pole position to that. I would, I would definitely be pissed. I would be really disappointed. But you know, Sergio Perez deserved something after Barcelona, and this just goes to show if they hadn't, like he was. I think what tire compound was he on? The tire compound. I think he was on mediums, was he? But his tires were given out. His tires were almost done for, and yet he still managed to keep signs behind him. Although it's Monaco, so not super difficult. But it was like he managed to keep signs behind him. I don't know if he would have managed to keep doing that for another two laps or so because I, his tires were just done. But you know he did what he needed to do, which goes to show that if he'd been left to race Verstappen in Barcelona, we would have probably seen something else. They need to let them race. That's what Christian Horner, aka Winch Spice, aka Spiceless Wonder, is always saying. Let them race. Let them race. Let people. Let Sergio Perez race Verstappen. Then let's see what happens. Let's see Verstappen happen. <laughs> anyway, um, the driver standings then mean that Verstappen has one hundred and twenty-five points. He's at the top of the table. Leclerc has one hundred and sixteen points. Paris has 110 points, so that's really good. Russell has 84 points. Carlos Sainz has 83 points. Um, Lewis Hamilton has 50 points. Lando Norris is only two points behind with 48. Valtteri Bottas, he's, he's got 40 points. Ocon has 30 points. And Magnussen has 15 points. Um, the Hask... I feel the Hass cars are fucked. I don't know how, how what they're going to do about Azerbaijan. I don't know what they're going to do about their cars because that's the next race. Um, and, you know, they're now um, spending caps. All the teams have spending caps. So I don't know that car to fix that car or to fix their cars is going to, especially um, Mick Schumacher's car, that's going to cost millions. And I don't know if they can do that within the spending cap and still have money to like make upgrades and to make repairs throughout the rest of the season. But, you know, we can only pray for them because, but then again, Gunther has way more points than he had last year. So, you know, anything's a win, even if they had to tap out at this point, anything's a win, but I don't want to speak bad on Haas because they've proven me to be a liar before. So I'm going to leave them well alone. Um, And as for Hamilton, like I said, you know, the race I'm at, he'll win it. So it is what it is. If I if you don't see me, then oh well. I'm not saying that he won't win without me, but let's see in it. Um, let's see what happens because 50 points, 50. <laughs> Something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. But we still got a lot of races left. You know, we still have a lot of races left. We still have a long way to go. Monaco is just not ever a nice race. I don't. I don't. It's not ever. You only go for like the glitz and glamour around it. But as a race itself it's very dry. And even though this year there was like the crash and then the rain and this and that people are like, Oh, it's more exciting than it's ever been. But yeah, people, a car literally had to split in half for there to be any excitement. And we don't want that. We don't want people to be hurt. And then Damon Hill talking about, Oh, well, was it right for the race to, race to have been stopped because of the rain? Yes. 
yes, it was right for it to have been stopped in the rain. Like, I don't know what's wrong with some of these commentators or these ex-drivers, what they want people to be doing. But anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Um, Hamilton changed his helmet halfway through. Um, I think, well, you know, at one point, I get it. I get it. Go back to what works. Um, Yeah, so that's that, I guess, for Start Your Motors. Um, And so I'll jump to Straw of the Week. Um, which I've pretty much already covered in the talk with Brit. But um, yeah, I'll just jump to straw of the week and call it a day. So my first straw of the week, um, before I even touch on that, the Trish Lawrence woman, she got $100,000. It was $100,000. It was the advance, not pounds. But anyway, just wanted to, as if that clears anything up, she still shouldn't have got all of that money to talk about other people's things um, and not even talk about it in a very nuanced, robust way. But, you know, these, let me, oh, I'm going back into it again. But honestly, agents read that, this person read that, that person read that, editors read that, and they went, yeah, you know what, this is great, put it out there. So I have to question what anybody is really doing with their job, but whatever. Back to this. Um, The 19 police officers that stood outside of Rob Elementary while um, that that shooter went in and um, massacred um, those children and the teachers, I just wanted to say that um, I want you to suck your mum for an eternity. Um, the fact that some of them even went in, some of the officers went in and got out their children, but left the rest of the children in there, told them to shout for help. That made them notice and then got them shot. One girl survived because she smeared her friend's blood all over herself and played dead. These children are traumatized for life. And you, as the police that's paid to go and do this job, that say this is the job that you wanted to do to serve and protect, what did you do at the end of the day? You stood there. So if a machine that he has is too dangerous for you to go into the building, does that not tell you that maybe this machine should not be um, on the street, should not be, it should not be possible for people to buy it? And you let those children die. You just let those children die. And they're like, I'm sickened. I'm sickened. And I'm so upset. And I feel like I'll be upset for a while because those little babies, those young children going to school and only for this Salvador, uh, what's it, um, Salvador Rolando Ramos, Ramos um, to go in there and shoot these people. 18 years old, killed his grandmother before, going to go and kill them, been killing cats and decapitating cats prior to that, only for his mum to come forward and be like, oh, you know, don't judge him. He had these issues, um, but he wasn't um, a bad boy or whatever she said. Like, you know, I don't want to blame mums because, you know, but you specifically, you can shut your fucking mouth. You can shut your fucking mouth because from when he was doing whatever he was doing with pet, you didn't think that he needed to see somebody. You didn't think that something needed to be done and and things needed to be said. But going back to, so um, Salvador, you know, fuck you. Um, fuck you. And I hope that you spend the rest of your life in jail. You monster. I hope you spend the, in the entire rest of your life in jail. Um, as for the police officers, this is why people are saying to defund you lot, because what are you doing? The job that you're meant to do, you can't do it. And the thing is, like, before he got into that building, there were armed police or whatever. There were armed security, from what I understand, on the premises. So how did he make it into the school? What were you lot doing? So everybody's useless at this, t- at this point and nobody's able to protect the children. So what is the point of all of this? And then you're doing drills with them. Like, oh, if you see a shooter... Um, wave your hand and try to get attention or whatever. So basically you can get, sh- your sh- your child can get shot first while the other children escape. 
Now the world, this is not, this can't be real. This can't be real life. Like what we're experiencing right now can't be real life. And I can't bring myself to come and record a podcast episode and pretend that this is okay. Like this, that this is all right. That this is normal. This is not fucking normal. What's happening in the world by and large in every regard, it's not fucking normal. And also Carrie, Boris Johnson's wife, you lying cow. So you were sending text messages, inviting people out for his birthday to come to the um, number 11 flat on Downing Street. But everyone was pretending like, oh, was it a party? We didn't know. Was it a party? So you knew. And this is why Dominic Cummings is coming for you lots, Clarks, because everybody's lying. Everybody's corrupt. And yet we're meant to live um, um, and and survive this and pretend like it's normal and try to find a way through. Everybody's traumatised. So many people are traumatised and they're trying to find a way through and they can't because fuckers are lying to them all the time going, oh, but this is um, legislation. This is our constitution. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it will always be. It will not be the way it will always be. This is some bullshit. This is some absolute bullshit. Um, So fuck you to all of the police officers that didn't do anything that they were meant to do. And fuck you for lying as well about what actually took place before you were caught in your lies. Fuck you forever. Um, And then my final straw of the week goes out to Uber. So I saw this um, thread last week where um, this person said, last night, my Uber driver got off an exit early. And as I was telling him it was the wrong exit, he continued to drive into the park. He started to slow down and park behind another white car with tinted windows and its engine on. I immediately jumped out of the car. As soon as I did, the car in front sped off and my Uber car driver and my Uber car followed behind it. I literally had to walk barefoot on the highway until I got home safe. Then I contact when I contacted Uber support, they wouldn't give me the license plate of the driver. So I went to the police station today to try to get the information as Uber support told me they refused because I wasn't harmed. Um, Uber support, Uber and the police, as I expected, did not help at all. And now that person is on the loose, giving other people rides, um, putting other people in danger. Um, I hope that Uber do get to um, the bottom of this because this is becoming um, a frequent thing. You know, anybody can get an Uber whatever license, whatever to, to go about driving people. And across the world, we are hearing more and more things like this happening. But for you to say that you can't give over the license plate because this person wasn't harmed. Well, they were harmed. They were harmed because they had to jump out of a moving car. They had to throw themselves out of a moving car and then walk along the highway to get themselves home because somebody was intending to kidnap them. That is also harm, the intention to kidnap them. So what do you mean? And meanwhile, are you investigating them and they're still out doing what they're doing and somebody else can be abducted? It's like, what is what is going on? So Uber, suck out. Suck out forever. Suck out because these rules and regulations that you lot have, that so thinly veiled patriarchy at work, thinly veiled misogyny at work, um, it's not going to cut it and everybody's disgusting. And, you know, for, for you to even stand by that and then the police to be like, well, don't know what we're going to do. And this is why people want to defund your club because what, what, so what are you useful for then? What are you actually doing? What is your job? What are you doing? What is your purpose? Because when someone asks you to do simple thing, you can't do it. It's not within your, um, your, your jurisdiction, but you want to be chopping money, chopping money, chopping money and be walking around with, um, with a badge and a gun. But you can't do nothing. You can't do anything. Just useless. That's all I wanted to say this week. I don't feel like there's much more to say apart from that. 
hope you have a good week. Uh, hope you got your tickets for the live show. And yeah, um, yeah, bye. It's the Ben's Punani Womanist Baby boys, baby girls, you need to hear this Baby sit down, sit down, receive this realness Make sure your cup's ready for the tea we are go sipping yo Hard time scrolling for your long shorts You might learn something you never know Collect you find, and she's one of a kind Don't say you mind, say you mind